Hello, my name's Tom Hughes, and I'm speaking to you from Cardiff, and I am very pleased to be interviewing Professor Jason Warren, Professor of Neurology in the Dementia Research Centre in UCL, and Dr. Jeremy Johnson, ABN Fellow and Senior Clinical Research Fellow in the Dementia Research Centre in UCL. They have written a superb paper, which is editor's choice in this month's Practical Neurology. And I, for one, can feel my clinical practice changing with every rereading of the paper. Um, Jason, welcome. How are you today? I'm very well. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for the kind introduction, Tom. Fantastic. Jeremy, ABN Fellow, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. And thanks again for inviting us. Great. Well, I'm... I'm going to kick off and uh, target those things that I think will be of particular interest to the readers. So I want to start by just checking, what does this word dementia mean? Perhaps Jason, I could come to you first. Does it have to involve memory and does it have to be progressive? How do you use the term? So it doesn't have to involve memory. That's a very important thing to get it across, I think, um, to neurologists. Uh, it can present in a, in a wide variety of different ways. But, but really, dementia just refers to it's a syndrome, and it's a syndrome of acquired progressive decline in cognition or behaviour. And some people would add of sufficient severity to interfere with uh, social occupational functioning, uh, which I think is a, is a little bit problematic because it kind of implies it's got to have got quite bad before you diagnose it, which of course is not what we want to encourage, but that would be a fairly standard definition. Lovely, thank you very much indeed. And um, Jeremy, you use these terms canaries, chameleons and zebras. Could you just talk us through how you're using those terms? Yes, so the canaries are the early warning signs, like the canary in the coal mine, uh, that suggest that something might just be starting to happen. Um, the chameleons are things that might look like something else, masquerade as something else. And that can either be, you know, dementia that looks like something else or something else that looks like dementia. And then the zebras are those rarities, the things that you might not see very often, but are important to know about. Wonderful. Yeah. And um, I was struck by um, the way in which because of course I thought as a generalist, the more advanced the dementia, the easier it is to diagnose. But you make a beautiful point that um, causative pathologies, particularly in neurodegenerative diseases, target certain brain functions selectively. And therefore it is easier to make a more confident diagnosis of the syndrome at an earlier phase before things start to overlap and converge. Jason, have I understood that correctly? It, it is a tricky point, actually. I, I think, so, so sort of unpack, unpack it a little bit. It, it, you are right in that it, it is um, certainly we're aiming, and we, I think, argue we all should be aiming to make an early diagnosis. And um, it's certainly easier, in, in a sense, to pick which pathology it might be if you catch it early, because the kind of the signature pattern, as I'm, I'm sure most neurologists will, will sort of realise, becomes blurred and effaced uh, and, and dementias start to look quite similar and start to look much more global as it goes along. And, the, and 
probably one other kind of thing just to say um, parenthetically is that dementia we're kind of implying here it's a sort of a neurodegenerative process which of course it doesn't have to be um, it's, it can be well over 100 different things some of which are incredibly rare and of course the commonest of them is Alzheimer's and so the kind of thinking about dementia is very skewed in the direction of a you know something degenerative and sort of on a trajectory um, and currently irreversible unfortunately um, so that that gets blurred and so it's easier in a way to, to pick up the clues earlier on but you know it, one of the most difficult things I think is is the very early accurate diagnosis and, and actually that's because of course things are they may be more selective but they're also more subtle early on so kind of trying to, to, to get that balance um, between, you know, confidence to be clear that there is something wrong, um, but also being able to do it early enough to be able to pick pathology. And the reason we emphasise pathology, people might well ask, well, you know, if it's not treatable, why does it matter? Is because, of course, we hope that soon it will matter in terms of treatment, but also because um, in terms of understanding what's going to happen to this person, you know, the way you talk to the family, possibly sparing them lots of unnecessary cycles of anxiety and stress, you know, you, you, you should be trying to make an early diagnosis. And of course, in some cases, there'll be other implications too. It might be genetic, might be other things flowing on from that diagnosis. So accurate diagnosis, early diagnosis is worth striving for. We, we argue that in the, in the paper. Um, but, you know, one of the hardest things, I think, in certainly in cognitive neurology is working out, is there something wrong with this person? Really something wrong with this person, i.e. something neurologically wrong with them when they first present. And, and that of course is where there's everything to play for potentially in terms of treatments if, if those treatments arrive. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, you know, um, it's, 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 you know we, we, as neurologists, we like to think about the kind of exotica and the kind of interesting diagnoses, but sometimes they're not actually the most challenging diagnoses to make sometimes the most difficult diagnosis is the first one, which is, you know, is there really something going on? So when we first sat down to write this paper, actually we wanted to foreground that problem. And then they're kind of, that's the kind of the canaries, the early warning signs. And then a lot of the other um, stuff that's in the paper, we wanted to add in there for completeness um, because after all neurologists cite zebras, <laughs> but, but I mean, it, it, it sometimes isn't kind of the business end of the consultation, if you see what I mean. Yeah. And that uh, takes me on very nicely to the day-to-day -day situation, um, Jeremy, that the patient walks into the room and particularly I think in early dementia, you're thinking, is there something wrong with this person? Could it be functional? Could they just be depressed? Could you talk us through the most useful things you find for picking up functional cognitive problems and then for picking up depression in our clinics? Hmm, sure. Um, so I, I think there are there are a few sort of hints. Um, very often uh, the person who's worried well or got a functional cognitive problem will complain of memory. Um, and that really is the chief complaint. And it's very typical that the person will arrive either on their own um, or if they are with someone, that they'll be significantly more concerned about their cognitive abilities than the person who's with them. And 
if they are on their own, a, a way into that is to ask them how they're getting on with things like work. You know, mm. Has anyone flagged that there's a problem? Has anyone at work said your performance has really dropped? And, and typically the answer will be no, and that they're the person who's worried. Um, and then the features about the actual description, probably the central thing is about consistency. So is there what we've referred to as internal inconsistency? What that really means is, despite what they complain of and what they struggle with, are there times when actually they perform very well at the task and other times when they perform poorly and their performance is quite erratic, which you don't really tend to find with people who have got a neurodegenerative problem, mm. whereby the performance steadily declines. Um, the one caveat would be the patient with Lewy body dementia, who really can be quite fluctuant. Um, but that's very marked and very obvious to the people around the person as well. Yeah. And, and then moving on to those who you think might be depressed, which obviously is a much more treatable condition than lots of the dementias that we're going to diagnose. What are your sort of top tips for spotting the the depressed patient? Yeah, I, th I think the major top tip is to always ask. Um, it's very easy not to ask uh, and to assume and ask questions such as, you know, do you feel tearful? Do you feel low? Do you feel apathetic? Like you feel that you don't want to do things, you can't really be bothered, you know, asking the person who's with them. It gives a lot of insight into that sort of question and and the people who are easiest to miss, I think, are the people who are not necessarily very emotional, but people who have just lost a bit of interest in things and generally quite flat in their affect. Yeah. So I think it's really important to ask. Yeah, thank you. And just going back to some of the chameleon mimic business, um, how do you approach things like spotting obstructive sleep apnea and all these things that can unhinge our daytime function? Um, Jeremy, what's your tip for spotting the, the general medical problems that can leave people unhinged? Yes, I mean, I always ask directly about mood, as we said, I always ask directly about sleep. Um, Sleep is such an important part of normal cognitive function, of supporting cognitive function. Again, I think it's it should be a part of every consultation um, as a as a as a default question. Yeah, as Dylan Thomas said, sleep navigates the tides of time. That'll be my last bit of poetry as a podcast. <laughs> so I come now to you, Jason. I just wonder if you could remind us all. It's convenient in the paper that you say there are three major variants of Alzheimer's and three major variants of frontotemporal dementia. Could you just talk us through those two lots of three? Yes, that, so nothing's ever really as simple as, as the rules of three dictate, of course, but it, the kind of standard way of thinking about it is that uh, Alzheimer's um, most often is a memory-led uh, syndrome, and by memory we mean a you know, decline in episodic and topographical memory of the sort that we normally all would think about when we think about memory. But the variant syndromes are, are kind of, they pick out components that, that are actually in the Alzheimer's syndrome. So uh, you know, if you sort of work and 
get to know people with Alzheimer's disease, you will see these features coming out, but they're really variants where the, these other things are the leading things. And the leading uh, problems are either with visual spatial and sort of visual awareness in the posterior cortical atrophy, PCA variant, with language, particularly word finding um, uh, in the logopenic variant, uh, and changes in behavior, which look quite a lot like frontotemporal dementia in the frontal variant, which is, which is the least uh, well-defined of them, probably. But I think one thing to I would try and get across to people is that I do really think that these are on a continuum. And even though we talk about these variants, not uncommonly, actually, you see blurring between them when individual people with Alzheimer's present. And in the case of the frontotemporal dementias, the kind of the, 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 the major syndromes are the decline in social and emotional behaviour and awareness, which is the behavioural variant. Um, often there are other features, executive dysfunction, other things, but it's really the change in the kind of interpersonal deportment, which is usually the really um, most telling thing early on. That's the commonest of them. But then there are also two um, language variants, and the language variants, so these are the non-Alzheimer language variants, are uh, semantic dementia, which is a breakdown of the semantic memory system, which is our kind of uh, conceptual encyclopedic knowledge of the world, knowledge of concepts and facts about things and words, um, or progressive non-fluent aphasia, which is the breakdown of speech production, which usually is very obvious as a uh, problem with um, effortful, um, misarticulated speech or agrammatic speech. So, so those are the kind of um, major syndromes. But again, in frontotemporal dementia, it's a really complex group of diseases. We see variations on that theme, not uncommonly, where, where the syndromes sort of overlap. For example, somatic dementia and behavioural variant quite often overlap, for example, as they start to evolve. So it, it is, yes, that they are quite useful pegs, I think, but we wouldn't want to kind of overstate how um, well demarcated they are. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So nature never draws a straight line without smudging it. Yeah. Great. So uh, coming now, Jeremy, I've got to recommend to everyone these tables. Uh, and in table two, uh, I'm still trying to commit these to memory. But there's a beautiful little section where you talk about counterintuitive symptoms. Mm. These include things like uh, the patient can read fine print, but not the headlines. And yes. the busy generalist, that's the sort of thing we're thinking, oh, uh, what's going on here? Could, could you explain that for us, please? Yes, and that's, uh, that's what sort of, I guess, what we would consider a classic example of a patient with posterior cortical atrophy, um, where because when you form a visual image, unless it's a small image that you can capture in its entirety in the center of your vision, in your foveal vision, you actually have to stitch together several images to make the full image. So you get this phenomenon where small letters that are in the center of vision are easy to read and large ones aren't. For example, a patient who complained about not being able to read the Metro on the, the, the Metro newspaper, the top of it, but could read the actual print in the article. And that would be very easy to pass off as, you know, something possibly functional or anxiety. Um, the other classic example in that syndrome is people going to get repeated pairs of glasses 
So they keep going to the optician because mm. they keep complaining of visual problems and they keep getting told that there's nothing wrong with their vision and they accumulate piles of glasses. <laughs> and, and I've got to just explore this business of people who say they can play tennis, but they can't find the ball. Surely that has to be non-organic. Yeah. Yes, I think I think you'd be forgiven for uh, for feeling that that was that was non-organic. But visual motion processing is also an important part of uh, the posterior parts of the brain. And we have had people who uh, could play tennis, but when the ball stopped moving, rolling on the floor, they couldn't find it. Yeah. Thank you. And Jason, that takes me on to the role of context, situation and the person's predicament in bringing out their cognitive impairment. I think we talk about in head injury, the frontal paradox, where patients can be fine when tested statically, but put them in a stressful environment and it brings out their frontal problem. To, to what extent is someone's individual predicament um, playing a part in when their symptoms manifest? It makes extremely important, critical, I would say. I mean, I think um, far more important than any one test or measure that we might do in clinic. I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, there's this old cliche about you, in neurology, if you don't know the diagnosis by the time the person sits down, <laughs> almost you, you're struggling. I mean, you need, you really, it's sort of um, the history and, and where they've come from is incredibly important for cognitive problems. I mean, um, and this is at sort of different levels. I mean, at one kind of sort of level, it's to try and calibrate for how you interpret, you know, things like what were their language skills occupationally or culturally, you know, maybe very important in interpreting how significant someone's language difficulties are, for example, or interpreting how they do on tests. Um, but, you know, be, beyond, beyond that, there may be more specific things. So there's a, there's a story coming out, which is an interesting story. It's very, remains very controversial, but this idea that there might be some developmental conditions or even occupational exposures that somehow prime the development of particular dementias. Um, for example, an interesting story some of the US groups have looked at, suggesting that developmental dyslexia might prime for some forms of progressive aphasia, for example. And there are probably, for all we know, there are probably a lot more examples of this. And then, sometimes you know it's the key to the diagnosis in the sense that you you um you know when you're trying to bring out these, these very early signs we're sort of talking about the, the subtleties of it you know you have to engage with what kind of is important for that person or where their particular strengths or weaknesses may have been so for example um the, one of my favorite examples in semantic dementia where you know loss of word knowledge loss of vocabulary is really it um you know early on this could be relatively subtle and you know you may have to ask someone about their particular vocabulary you know the the kind of um uh martin ross's favorite example is you know gardeners who kind of lose knowledge about plants and flowers and i have had some slightly strange looks from my colleagues i did have a classicist who uh, he was working as a stockbroker but he was classically trained who had somatic dementia and initially the most convincing evidence of this was he was unable to tell me reliably which Greek playwrights had written rich plays. And, you know, that seems a bit silly, but that was, for him, that was a significant deficit. And then it evolved into this kind of, you know, much more, unfortunately, widespread problem with semantic knowledge. So, you know, you, you need to understand, 
diagnostically and then in terms of management you know really need to know in detail about what people's lives are like in terms of kind of what's their you know their setup their supports their social milieu what occupation are they doing you know clearly things like driving and uh, kind of things that might put them at risk you know it's a it's a very i mean all we all as urologists like to think we're holistic but it's it's a very holistic um subspecialty in in that sense because you can't manage people effectively unless you uh, kind of engage with those things. And so I think that's, you know, the diagnosis of dementia can't ever just be made. In fact, I'd be really wary about suggesting it can be made, you know, from a score on a test or even a brain scan, you know, what a brain scan looks like. That, 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 that sooner or later is, is going to get you into trouble diagnostically. Yeah. So I think one of the message I, I, messages I got, you really do need the story, the signs, the pictures and the numbers to uh, before you make a diagnosis um thank you wonderful jeremy i just wanted to come to you as we near a close to ask you about because it's topical uh head trauma traumatic brain injury and we've seen in the news rugby players who are still working and who might have been exposed to some alcohol on and off during their playing careers who are saying they have a traumatic encephalopathy. What are your tips for us about spotting patients who have had significant head trauma, which is contributing to their cognitive problem? Yeah, I think it's, it's a, as you say, a very topical and a difficult question, actually, because I think there's still a lot of uncertainty as to what clinically, what sort of syndromically, uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy presents as. Um, and as you say, there's often the complication of uh, depression, um, of perhaps sometimes substance use um, and various other things. And there's also the, uh, the weight of potential lawsuits. Um, uh, I think that probably the, the most important thing for us would be to ensure that they don't have, for example, impending Alzheimer's disease, um, which really can be you know, a risk. Um, as to the clinical sort of phenotype of chronic traumatic encephalopathy, I think that remains to be elucidated. Um, Jason, I'm not sure uh, what you think about that, but I know that we've had lots of discussions about this. Yeah, I, I will say we're seeing more and more of it in clinics and, uh, you know, former footballers of various codes, for example, boxers. I mean, it, I mean, it's a potentially, as Jeremy says, a massive problem. And I do think there's a lot, a lot of there's some very good work being done to define it. But we, we, need, we need a lot better sort of objective markers, early sort of markers in that condition, as with these others that we're talking about, um, to yeah. try and, you know, hopefully diagnose and intervene effectively. Thank you very much. So um, I want to recommend this paper to everybody, uh, but I am obliged to finish with asking you in your column, signs not to miss or misinterpret, you've listed bottom apraxia and the Vicar of Dibley sign. Um, so Jason, could you talk me through bottom apraxia? I think I prefer the euphony of buttock apraxia. And then perhaps um, Jeremy, you could talk me through the Vicar of Dibley sign, um, Jason. Yeah, so so bottom eight, the, these are kind of uh, we we kind of were slightly 
revealing a kind of some in-house, this is what we call them in-house, more than sort of, uh, you know, the, sort, the usual pompous neurological terminology. Um, and the Vicar of Dibley, as Jeremy will probably tell you, has a much more pompous designation for, the, uh, for most of the medical literature. And both of these, by the way, largely credit to Martin Rosser, who, who, who probably was uh, certainly, as, as far as I, I'm aware, was the first to talk about both of them. Um, the bottom apraxia is the, the sort of peculiar inability to kind of orient oneself sort of axially, and particularly when finding a chair uh, or getting in and out of a, a chair. And this is a, a marker of, um, among other things, called a cabezal syndrome, and the kind of the, goes with some of the difficulties those patients have with praxis more generally. Great, thank you very much. And um, Jeremy, the Vicar of Dibley sign, please. Yes, the um, the Vicar of Dibley sign is, um, it refers to a tendency of patients to reverse the meaning of, of what they wish to say. So yes, when they mean no, it can also stretch to up when they mean down, um, or cold when they mean hot. Um, and it it was coined based on the character in the Vicar of Dibley who would say, yes, 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 no, all of a, uh, you know, all of a sudden at the end. Um, and it, it seems to be a relatively uh, specific sign actually for patients with non-fluent aphasia. Um, but it, it, it's, it's relevant, not just as a, a sort of interesting anecdote, but it can lead to potential um, communication struggles. So it, I think it's relevant to be sort of aware of because if you ask family about it, they'll often suddenly say, oh yes, we, we have noticed that, but we weren't sure if we were imagining things or if that was real. So it can also be quite helpful to elicit it. It's a good example actually of a, of a so we, we, call, we usually uh, call it binary reversal. And it's a good it's a good example of something which gives a real organic pointer very counterintuitive but organic pointer and sometimes it's sort of early on particularly if people are just a bit hesitant with their speech or it might be that they've lost the ability to make small talk or something quite vague like that you're trying to work out is there really something going on if you hear that and sometimes you do have to ask about it it's not always volunteered if you hear that history it really is a red flag that there actually is something going on with that person thank you very much so Jason, finally, I think it's very exciting that we've all heard quite recently about therapeutic opportunities and in particular aducanumab for Alzheimer's disease. Um, how do we approach the consultation and is this going to make a difference to our routine consultations with patients who might be eligible? So Aducanumab is a hugely topical thing at the moment, as I'm sure mo most of your readers will have, will have come across. It was, uh, you know, front page news, literally. And this is because the FDA has licensed what has been widely promulgated as the first disease modifying treatment for Alzheimer's disease. And uh, in fact, it's very controversial and it was a controversial licensing decision. And then the, the magnitude of the benefit and how to select those patients who might benefit remains quite unclear. NICE has not licensed it yet in this country, but, but you know, we, we know that there will be enormous pressure from many sources to do that. And so potentially, I mean, if aducanumab gets licensed in the UK, if it gets licensed here, it, it will be um, completely transformative, I would predict, on the whole business of, you know, people seeking a diagnosis, being very worried that they could have um, 
dementia and really being desperate to get onto treatment early. So I think, um, I suppose we, we all have to try and keep a level head as neurologists. Um, but I think, it, I suppose at the least what I would say is I think that the, the suspicion of dementia and being confident about kind of triaging someone that, you know, there's something going on with this person, I need to do further tests, I need to follow them up, I need to refer them maybe, um, is going to become a much bigger deal for the, the, the you know, apocryphal jobbing neurologist um, as, as all of this breaks. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. And I think it has real implications for the business of day units within neurology departments. They'll have to be the size of Heathrow Airport. Great. Well, that's wonderful. I'm always telling my colleagues that um, the answer is not in the history, but it's in the clinical historian. And I get a feel that you two are at the top of your game as clinical historians. Thank you very much indeed for taking part and contributing so much to practical neurology and to this podcast. And I commend your paper to all of our listeners. Thank you very much indeed.